Thank you for taking the time to listen to this sermon from Seekers Christian Fellowship. We believe that God's Word completes the believer, making them fully equipped men and women of God, ready for every good work. It is our prayer that through this message, you're challenged by the Word of God, built up in love for God and one another, conforming to the image of Jesus Christ. again and uh, I'm so glad that you chose to come today and those who are watching online. As you know, we are doing a series from the book of Nehemiah and uh, last week, of course, we focused on one of the attributes of God and we are going back to the book of Nehemiah. If you have your Bibles, I would like you to turn to Nehemiah chapter 4. Chapter 4 is what you are going to look at today. Now, last time when I spoke on the book of Nehemiah, we spoke about the vision of Nehemiah. In reality, every one of us, we have a vision for our own lives. Either it is stipulated or stated clearly, or it's unstipulated. But there is a vision that we have, and we are driven by the vision. Some are very clearly defined, and some are very quite vague. But we live to accomplish that vision. Everything we do in life would be towards achieving this vision. The choices we make, the career we choose, the circle of friends that we embrace, the priorities we set, our desires and our actions, everything would be directing us and guiding us to accomplish this vision. Won't you agree with me on that? Now, let me give you some examples of personal vision statements. Here's from someone who says, to excel in my profession and to hold the highest rank, to earn so that I could own the mansion and the car of my dreams, to be surrounded with people who would be there to serve me and to travel around the world. That's one vision of one individual. Here's another vision, to be the person my children look to with pride when they say, this is my dad. To be the one who my children come for comfort and love and understanding. To be the friend known as caring and always willing to listen empathetically to their concerns. If I am to ask you a question, church, what is your personal vision in life? Having a written personal vision really allows you to plan the most efficient course of action that you can take to reach your goals. It allows you to have clarity of when to say yes and when to say no to things based on your own personal values and vision. It also helps you to spot potential hazards or roadblocks before you are impacted by them. Every one of you, when you go home today, if you don't have one, I would encourage you to write down your personal vision statement. And here's the next thing you should do. You must show it to your accountability partner who will hold you accountable for your choices. So let me give you my vision statement. And I mean it from the bottom of my heart. To glorify God by growing to be first a God-honoring husband. Then a godly father a confidant, and then a servant of God who will reflect the image of Christ in my daily walk and in my talk. 
And church, my family, I want, to, I want you to know this. If you see, ever see my talk or my walk, don't tally up. I want you to hold me accountable, please. I will certainly submit to loving admonishment. Now, we spoke about our goals and our vision of the church. And I did mention a few times that SEF must be a prototype of what heaven would be. A house comprising of people from all nations and tribes and tongues. And we further said the way we would approach that is by spreading passion for God's glory among the various people groups of our nation. People from all nationalities, tribes and ethnicity and tongues by proclaiming the gospel and by helping all his saints to delight in Jesus Christ as their greatest joy and treasure. Well, we have established what our vision would be. It may take our lifetime to see it happen. Sometimes it may not happen in my lifetime. So how do we achieve this vision? Or put it another way, can this be achieved? What would stop us? And how do we overcome this? That's a lesson we are going to learn today from Nehemiah chapter 4. We are looking at how to live a life of vision. Now, as you see the book of Nehemiah and you read the story, his, his biography, God took an ordinary man by the name of Nehemiah. He gave him a vision and helped him to achieve extraordinary things. We saw Nehemiah go public with the vision. When Nehemiah shared the vision, and he did so in such a compelling way that God prepared the people to respond. And here's the response that we see in, when Nehemiah presented his vision. They replied at once, good, let's rebuild the wall. So they began the good work. So after months of preparation, things were finally starting to happen. The vision is about to become reality. But today, we are going to look at one of the major obstacles to living a life of vision. If you already haven't figured out in your own life, you will soon discover an important truth about vision. Visions attract Criticism. Everybody say the word criticism. Criticism. In fact, we read, please read with me the first sentence in chapter 4, verse 1. Sanballat was very angry. The vision was established. The first thing that we see in chapter 4, verse 1 is Sanballat was very angry when he learned that we were building the wall. A God-given, God-glorifying visions attract criticism. You can write it down, and there has never been a God-given vision that has not been criticized. You have to expect to be criticized. Today we are going to look at how to handle that criticism. It's important that we do this because visions often die at the hands of critics. We have God-given visions, but visions often die at the hands of the critics. It would be tragic for you to lose that vision because somebody criticizes you. So the question is, church, today, how can you live out God's vision 
even when you are criticized. How do you do this, Pastor? Obviously, that's the question. Come along with me as we go through this chapter 4. So let me give you a big picture understanding again. It was very necessary for the children of God to be safe from the attacks of the enemy. And if they are going to worship God according to his law and commanded, they need to build this wall. It was necessary. And so as they labored to build this wall, they faced constant opposition to their work. They became weary and they became discouraged. But, hear me out, church, they never stopped their work. Eventually, they completed the task and were victorious over their attackers. This is true on the personal level. Now hear me out, please. As long as you live with one foot in the world and living according to the world's values and for the world's goals, Satan will not trouble you. You can go to church and you can pray, you can read the Bible and he won't mind it. But the minute you wake up from your spiritual lethargy, shake off the worldly mindset, and commit yourself to radical obedience. Let me repeat that word. Radical obedience to Jesus Christ, you will encounter spiritual opposition. That's why Paul writes and he says this. He says to, in 2 Timothy chapter 3, in fact, everyone who wants to live godly life in Christ Jesus will be Read that with me. Persecuted. Persecuted. Since this is true, would you also agree there are times that we too, when you face this opposition, will become discouraged, won't we? Of course we will be. There are times that we grow weary in the battle to build and be all that God wants us to be. Many times. I, as a pastor, as an individual, as a believer, I have experienced discouragement many times. I believe there are some truths contained in this passage as we study this, which will certainly help us to be strong, to be faithful, to be active in the struggle. And this also applies to church and church leaders. Because whenever godly leaders attempt to rally God's people to advance God's kingdom, devil will attack. There will be opposition. Now, Satan doesn't mind when churches gather to sing and to hear soothing sermons about how to use the Bible to become, person, to become richer, to achieve personal wealth and health. Those churches are no threat to his domain of darkness. But, church, when a pastor preaches the gospel that convicts sinners of their sin in the presence of a holy God and points them to the cross of Christ, look out what happens. Now, when a pastor calls the flocks to obedient, holy living in this wicked world, look out what happens. 
When a pastor calls out and directs the vision of the flock toward the unreached nations, let's go and reach out to the people. Look out what's going to happen. The enemy is committed to opposing that kind of work. So we need to be ready for such opposition and know how to respond to it. So this Nehemiah chapter 4 helps us to navigate in such situations. It teaches us what to do and how to react when the enemy opposes us, and he surely will. Now last time when I was here, we were looking at chapter 3. It was a great chapter to read. We get the impression that the work on the wall went without a snag. So-and-so built this gate, and these people built the wall to this point, and next to them, these people built the wall further, etc. You, you heard that being read last time. It was a little bit of a boring thing to read the whole passage, isn't it? So-and-so built this, so-and-so built the wall, this was connected to that, this, that, and the other. That's what it was. But it looked like everything was going fine for ch in chapter 3. It sounds as if there were no problems whatsoever, church. But that was not the case. You will see as we go through chapters 4 and 6, you will see a cycle of advance and setbacks. They move forward and they come back. They move forward and they come back. That's what we are seeing in these chapters 4 and 6. This cycle shows that Christian life is a life of conflict. There will be opposition for all of us. The enemy will try to get you sidetracked and give, us, give up completely. Even though it was God's will for the wall to be rebuilt. I want you to get this very clearly. Even though it was God's will for the walls to be rebuilt, he did not remove the opposition. Did you see that? Even though it is God's will for you to grow strong in faith and to labor to advance his kingdom, God does not remove the opposition. Wow. So if you respond properly to this opposition, the response will drive you greater dependence on the Lord and to greater determination to do what He had called you to do. But if you yield to the opposition, yield to the temptation, you will quit the race in discouragement and settle in for a mediocre Christian existence. And sadly, church, that is how many Christians are today. They fall to the Satan's ploy. They justify their failures. They qualify their reasoning, not willing to mortify their flesh. So in order for us to overcome the enemy in our personal lives or in the church life, we must be aware of the kinds of opposition that he uses. So that's what we are going to look at now, the various forms of opposition. Let me make a statement here first. Church, if you know Jesus Christ and attempt to accomplish anything for him, the enemy will oppose you. Just want you to know that very clearly. So in this text that we, that we look at, chapter 4, there are five types of opposition that we are looking at. The first opposition is the anger of others against you. 
We, saw, we see in verse number one, Sambalat was very angry. He was an angry man. He was the governor of Samaria. He became furious and he was very angry. The Hebrew word, the meaning of that is burning mad. That's what it is. Livid. He was angry. Why? Because a secure and an independent Jerusalem would really threaten Sanballat's hold on the area. These guys are coming and they're going to be secure and it's a threat for him. So what he did when he saw this Israel putting up their walls, he dropped his difference with the neighbors and became friendly with them because he wanted them to come together so they can attack because he was so angry. In anger over Nehemiah, what he was going to do, they all came together, the neighboring kings and neighboring um, cities, and they were threatening to stop the work by violence if necessary. This new work of God in Jerusalem threatened their lifestyle, so they got angry. Church, Satan often uses the anger of others to try to muffle the newfound joy and zeal of a new believer. Please hear me out. Suppose you were, a, you were born in a culturally religious home where the gospel was never preached and you got saved. You go home to your mom and dad. And you joyously tell your parents how you have met Jesus as Lord and Savior. Are they overjoyed? Hardly. Hardly. They explored, what do you mean that you have become a Christian? How do you think we raised you as a heathen? What's all this nonsense about being born again? So why do you think they are mad? You would think they would be glad that the kid is not doing drugs anymore. He's not making girls pregnant in the neighborhood. But they are mad because if their kid gets serious about God, it threatens their worldly, self-centered lifestyle. The same thing happens when a wife meets Christ. Isn't it? Her zeal for God convicts her husband of his wicked ways. And he responds with anger. Because you will cause a change of behavior and values and priorities. And it is a threat for others. I thank the Lord for my wife. Why, the reason I'm telling you is simply because she came to know the Lord before me. Even though we were brought up in Christian homes. When she came to know the Lord... There are times that she has to lovingly rebuke me. I was, within me, my pride did not let me to listen to what she was saying. That's exactly what you're seeing here in this text. Because your pride will not let you listen because you get angry because your behavior has got to change. Threat for your family and for your spouse and for your friend. Life is not the same anymore. That will make them angry. That's exactly what happened to Sanballat here. Satan's aim is to get the new Christians to cool his commitment to the Lord. So the first opposition, when you want to live a life of vision, God-honoring vision, is anger of others. 
And if anger doesn't stop the work, Satan holds another one here. Look at this. It's mockery and sarcasm. Look at verse number two. Now Sanballat and his buddies, they gathered together within hearing distance so that the Israelites can hear what they are saying. And they were asking a bunch of sarcastic questions. What are these feeble Jews doing? They didn't say, what are these Jews doing? What are these feeble Jews doing? Will they fortify themselves? Will they offer sacrifices? Will they complete it in a day? Will they revive the stones from the heaps of rubbish, stones that are burnt? What he means, do you think they can complete this project, project and offer sacrifices of thanksgiving? Can they finish it in a day? That's what they were. They were mocking them. So after every question, I'm sure their bodies were probably roared with laughter. And then look at verse number three. Tobiah threw another sarcastic bomb. Now Tobiah, the, the Ammonite, was beside him and he said, whatever they build, if even a fox goes up on it, he will break down their stone wall. If a fox should jump, that's, that's exactly what they're saying. He would break down the wall. Sarcasm. Satan frequently uses ridicule against those who take a stand for the Lord. If you become a Christian and let it be known, your fellow workers will mock you and call you a holy Joe, isn't it? They'll be waiting for you to fall into some sin so that they can, they can hoot you and they can, joy, they can rejoice over your failure. And they say, we knew there was no difference. Christians are a bunch of hypocrites. They'll keep mocking and ridiculing you until you fall prey to their trap. So the first opposition we saw was anger. The second one was mockery and sarcasm. And the third one that we are going to look at is threats and intimidation. Your commitment to Christ threatens their godly lifestyle. Now, if anger ridicule don't work, the enemy gets more aggressive and Nehemiah's enemies had to be very careful because Nehemiah's People are building the wall with the permission of the king. We looked at it the first time, right? Isn't it? So they couldn't just rally their troops and march on Jerusalem. They would be charged with rebellion against the king. But they could and did was use threats of violence. That's what they did. Which they circulated among the Jews living near them. Look at this passage. Verse number 8. And all of them conspired together and come and attack and create confusion. They did not physically attack. But that's what they portrayed. A threat. Look at verse number 11. And our adversary said they will neither know nor see anything till we come into their midst and, will, and, and kill them and cause the work to cease. You know, church, Satan still uses subtle or obvious threats and intimidation to oppose Christians. If you don't keep quiet about the corruption that is happening in the, in the workplace, you'll be fired. You see some unethical things happening. If you discipline as children, as Scripture says, the authorities will take them away from you. Yes? 
or if you write a paper in defense of the Christian faith, the professor will flunk you. This is what you hear all the time. Just like the militant and anti-Christian movements today, the threat of terrorist activity put the Jewish under immense psychological pressure there. Within the church body church, when we have unbelieving Christians, you know what I mean. They are nominal Christians, Christians who have still not saved. They are the ones who would be quick to pass judgment on the decisions made by godly leadership, isn't it? They stir up troubles within the body or speak behind and bring false allegations to intimidate. In a personal level, the so-called peers and friends could blackmail you with your past and thus threatening you to give up all your godly values and convictions. So that was the third thing we looked at. First is the anger, the mockery and sarcasm, and threats and intimidation. Fourthly, what we are seeing is discouragement and exhortation. Exhaustion, I'm sorry. You become discouraged and at times want to give up. Now, apparently there was a discouraging proverb or a work song that circulated among the workers at this point. Look at this, verse number 10. The strength of the laborers is failing and there is so much rubbish that we are not able to build the wall, they said. Verse number 10. The people were wearing out and the piles of rubbish didn't seem to be diminishing. But I want you to get this, church. When they first started, how motivated they were. Look at verse number 6. So we, so we built the wall and the entire wall was joined up together to half its size and the people had a mind to work. They started off with so much enthusiasm. Now all of a sudden you find that all oh, their laborers were failing. There is so much rubbish and not able to build the wall. They lost their earlier heart for the work. Because Satan knows the halfway point in any work is the most effective time to strike. Because when a new project begins, there is plenty of enthusiasm. Let's build, let's get together, let's do it. If you get over the midway hump and coming nearing the, nearing the end, you are still excited to finish it off. So there is enthusiasm. But right in the middle of the project, there's exhaustion and discouragement. The same thing is true in your walk with Lord. When you first get on fire for the Lord, I want you to just close your eyes for a moment, please, everyone, and think of your first love. I'm not talking about the love of your partners. I'm talking about the love with Christ. Think of your first love for a moment. Close your eyes and think about this. And that was the time you were going to win the world for Christ. That was the time every Bible study you go to seems fresh and challenging for you. That was the time that you were in the Word and your prayer and, and you find new discoveries and you can't get enough. I need more. Isn't it? But somewhere down the road, down the line, the newness wears off. You begin to notice the piles of rubble in your own life and in the church and the problems and sins that just don't seem to go away. 
You know, church, this was there even you started. But all of a sudden, the Satan is drawing your attention to these piles of rubbles right in front of you. You begin to grow weary, wondering if all your efforts and, uh, are making any difference for the cause of Christ. Your weariness leads to discouragement. Church, if there's one word I want to tell you, as a believer, having lived for more than 60 plus years in this world, consistency. Everybody say the word consistency. That's what is expected of believers. Whether you like it or not, I'm going to pray, you pray every day. I'm going to read the Bible, you read every day. I'm going to do this, you do it every day. There are days that you will not want to do it, but do it. Do it. So the last one that we see in the opposition, the first one was their anger, the mock second was mockery and sarcasm, third one was the threats and intimidation, fourth one is the discouragement and exhaustion, the fifth one is negativism. You receive negative vibes from within. Now, very interestingly, look at verse number 12. Look at verse number 12, church, please. It's an interesting, important passage. The criticism and the mockery came from enemy outside. This negativism that we are looking at came from the Jews themselves who lived near the enemy. Look at this passage. So it was when the Jews who dwelt near them came that they told us ten times, from whatever place you turn, they'll be upon us. So these people were not involved in the work of the building. This is significant because we looked at it last time. These are the spectators in the church. These are the spectators in your life. They lived near the enemy and thus were constantly exposed to these negative attacks. They weren't involved personally in the work. So they were hearing negative reports and threats and they didn't know firsthand what God was doing in Jerusalem. So they came and the Bible says 10 times repeatedly. The Hebrew meaning of that word is over and over. That's what 10 times means there. To warn Nehemiah that those working on the wall, that they will come up against us from every place where you may turn. They are the Debbie Downers. And you have them everywhere. Invariably, negativism in the church comes from professing Christians who live near the enemy and are not involved in the Lord's work. Such negativism is the enemy of faith. There are, you know, there were, when Moses sent the twelve to go and, and, and inspect the land and to come out, Moses, there were 12 were sent out and, and 10 came out and they said, there are giants in the land. Do you know the story? Yes. We are like grasshoppers in their side. There is no way we can take the land. But two out of the 10. Caleb and Joshua, because they had a different spirit. That's what the Bible says. Nehemiah didn't ignore the very real danger that existed. But if he had listened to these Debbie Downers, 
they would never have been able to finish this wall. So we looked at five oppositions here. These are some of the tactics that Satan uses the anger of others around you, the mockery and sarcasm, the threats and intimidation, discouragement and exhaustion, and negativism. So it begs the question, then, how do you respond to that? Whenever you encounter opposition, you have several options, church. You can either run from it, you can try to dodge it, you can go around it, you can try to work out a compromise, or you can meet it head on and work through it. And the last approach is usually the only biblical way. The last approach. So church, because of the time factor that we have, I'm going to pause my sermon with this. And I'll follow with the second part of it. How do you overcome the opposition? How do you overcome the opposition? So far what we have learned is that when these children of God, when they started to build this wall, they faced oppositions. And we looked at it in our own lives, the oppositions that we are facing, the anger of others around. We looked at the mockery and the sarcasm of others. We looked at the threats and intimidation of others. And it caused discouragement and exhaustion for us. And the negativism that comes from within. That's what we looked at so far. So these are the negatives. We're going to look at the positives next time around. Can I ask all of you to rise? And I just want to pray for us right now. Let us pray. Father, we thank you for this time. We thank you for your servant, Nehemiah. We thank you for what we learned from Nehemiah today. Master, we can see that how he was able to bring these people together. And in the last chapter, we saw with what enthusiasm and excitement they started building this wall. And as we come into this chapter 4, we see how the enemy started to attack them. How the enemy was not very pleased when the God-given vision was about to be fulfilled. How the enemy started mocking them and, and, and throwing sarcastic remarks at them. How the enemy threatened them and intimidated them. And which caused discouragement and exhaustion among the people. And even people from within gave negative, comment, negative comments. And Father, we see that in our own lives, oh God. Those of us who want to live godly lives. And we do face this opposition in our own lives. So this morning, we just want to ask you, Master. May your presence continue to be with us. May we learn the lessons from your children, the children of God, the chosen ones, whom you redeemed from the captivity whom you brought with the promise, a God-given vision to build a wall. And may we learn the lessons from them. And may we live a victorious life. So help us. 
In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen.